0: Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. As we just read, we will be in Psalm 22, and we will cover the first 18 verses today, and then uh, the rest of the Psalm we will cover uh, next week. So, as you turn there, I want to remind you of something that I've told you before, and that is that I am not handy. Uh, Some guys are born with the gift of handiness, Uh, some guys grow into it, I have neither. And so I think some of it goes back to the fact that when I was a kid, I was kind of forbidden from using my dad's tools. Now it wasn't that my dad was particularly fond of his tools, as if he had the nicest tools or something like that, but he just knew that if I borrowed a tool, I was either going to lose it or I was going to abuse it by breaking it somehow. I was gonna use it for something other than its actual intended purpose. And so whenever I saw a screwdriver, I didn't think that's great for screwing stuff in. Instead, I thought, let's see how high you can throw it up in the air and then get it to land and uh, stick in the ground. But sometimes I just throw it into the woods and then see if I could find it later. Or whenever I had a a hammer, I thought the best use of that hammer was to throw it as hard as I possibly could at a tree and see how big of a divot I can make in the tree or if I was really lucky, make it stick in the tree. And that was kind of like, you get double points for that. Or if we had a saw, I would see, I'd watch cartoons and they always play music on saws and I thought, that sounds fun. You break a lot of saws doing that though, or you cut yourself. And so I wasn't uh, very uh, responsible. In fact, to this day, if you went to my childhood home and you had a metal detector, you'd probably find all kinds of uh, toys and tools and uh, and so forth. But when I graduated uh, from college, my brother gave me a toolbox and he gave me a, a, a tool set. Uh, but those two were eventually misplaced and mismatched and so forth. So a couple of years ago, my father-in-law was over at my, uh, my house and, uh, and he asked if he could borrow a particular tool because he was doing some task there at the house because I'm not handy and I can't do it myself. And, uh, and so he asked to borrow a screwdriver or something like that. And I bring him like seven flathead screwdrivers and I have one Phillips uh, screwdriver, but it's only the type of Phillips that's like just for like screwing in that little screw in a sunglass and uh, our sunglasses. And, uh, and so, you got to know something about my father in law that he's a contractor, and so he's like super handy, and I'm the exact opposite. So, he took me shopping and bought me a whole bunch of uh, a brand new tool set and so forth, which is really ha- helpful because if you have the right tool, it oftentimes can make the job a lot easier uh, for you. Uh, tasks are a lot, uh, a lot easier if you have the right tool. I mean, you can pound a nail into a wall and probably some of us have done this by using a tape measure, right? But it works better if you use a wrench or... I know, you don't really use a wrench, you use a nail pounder, that's what it's called. And, uh, and so uh, the reason I mention this is because just like you use a different tool for different tasks, so when you're preaching or you're teaching or you're trying to understand scripture, different types of scripture require different methods, different tools, if you will. So a preacher or a teacher has different tools in his tool belt as they approach the different types of scripture, what are called genres. scripture. And so uh, uh, in the past, over the past few years, most of the time together has been spent in a type of literature in scripture that's called epistolary literature. That's from the word epistle, which is kind of like an ancient letter. And so we've considered Ephesians, we've considered uh, Romans, we've considered first, second, and third John. That's where we spent the bulk of our time over the past year in particular is in the uh, Johannine epistles. But now we're in a different genre of scripture. We are now in what's called uh, poetic wisdom literature in the Psalms. And so even though we had a particular method, a way of doing something in the epistles, we need to approach things a little bit different. For example, whenever we were preaching through 1 John or 2 John or Ephesians or something like that, there would often be weeks when you would come in and what was read from the stage was just one verse or maybe two verses. Two verses. All right, today we're tackling 18 different verses, so that means we need to kind of adjust and adapt. And so, uh, whereas in Ephesians, we might have looked at every single word and phrase and we were able to actually carefully dissect that individual word or phrase, that's not what we're going to be able to do in the book of Psalms, and that's okay. It's a different type of literature, and so it demands something different of us. There's different expectations uh, for us. And so uh, we find ourselves in a different genre of Scripture. In fact, even within the Psalms, there are various different types or genres of Psalms. All right, as there's various types of screwdrivers or wrenches or something like that. And so we've already seen a bunch of these uh, just in the few weeks that we have been in the Psalms. We've seen wisdom Psalms, like Psalm 1. We've seen a kingdom and coronation psalm in Psalm 2. We've seen lament psalms like Psalm 13. We've seen psalms of praise and thanksgiving like Psalm 103. And then last week we saw a psalm of uh, contrition and confession in the penitential psalm uh, 51. So this week we find ourselves back in a repeat psalm that is a lament psalm. And because we're considering this different genre, we need a different method. And that's totally appropriate because different tasks require different uh, tools. And so uh, every single word of scripture is inspired. Every single word of scripture is edifying. And yet the bulk of what we're going to read today is somewhat self-explanatory. And so what we're going to do is not gonna necessarily cover every single individual word, but instead we're gonna look at the bigger picture. All right. Whenever we talk about expository preaching, that doesn't mean what we often think uh, in that it doesn't mean that you necessarily are looking at every single individual word and you're spending an hour on that word. Instead, the idea of expository sermons is that you are giving, uh, the, that, that the uh, points and the meaning of the text match the points and the meaning of the sermon. That's what expository preaching is. It also doesn't mean that you're necessarily going uh, line by line by line by line through a book of the Bible, like with Psalms. We're jumping around and considering different Psalms uh, each week, but that is okay. And so many of the phrases that we're going to look at today aren't that difficult, and so we're not going to spend as much time on them. Instead, we're going to spend our time on what is uh, more important and most uh, confusing. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the first half of Psalm 22 uh, together just ask you first to pray for yourself. As you come in, maybe with uh, a divided heart and mind, the Lord would give you uh, an ability to pay attention and a desire to actually learn and to hear from his word. And then will you pray that for those around you as well, whether they're family or friends or strangers, That the Lord would give us collectively as a, a church, a body, a desire to hear his word and to apply it to our lives. And then would you pray for me, for boldness and faithfulness to his word? So Father, we ask for your help this morning. We trust that you love us and you have proven your love for us and that you have given us your son and you've given us your spirit and you've given us uh, your word in the scripture. And so we pray that you would help us this morning to be faithful to understand it and to, uh, uh, by your grace, by your spirit, uh, have it applied upon our lives. And so I pray that you would bless now the uh, proclamation of your word because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well as we, as we begin we need to bear in mind something that we have said a number of times before but if this is your first time with us in the psalm uh, sermon series then you might not know this and that is that there is a difference between the English translator's title of a psalm and the superscript that precedes a psalm. So we have a slide here. That we're going to put up on, uh, on the screen. And so on that uh, slide, you will see two bits of text. This probably looks somewhat, uh, some, something like what you see in your actual Bible if you have a hard copy there or you're looking on your phone or something like that. And so you see two different, uh, actually three on this, different bits of text. The first one you're familiar with, uh, that is the actual text under uh, number one, my God, my God. But let's talk about those other two pieces of text. The first one of those, why have you forsaken me? That's written in bold there. That's just something that English translators have added to the text to help you. That's not inspired. That's not canonical. It's in your Bible, but it isn't really a part of the canon of Scripture any more than if you were to write a little note in your column. That's just a helpful tool there for your interpretation, but that is not a part of your actual Bible. It, but in addition to that phrase, why have you forsaken me? They're up in bold. You also see something below that in italics. It says, To the choirmaster, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David. That is a superscript. All right, the superscript is considered a part of can- the canon of Scripture since it's in our earliest manuscripts. We don't really have early manuscripts of the Old Testament that do, uh, that do not have this particular superscript. And so this is a part of your Bible, All right, This is not just something that the translators have added in or whatever it might be. We should consider this to be inspired, a part of the canon of, uh, of Scripture. So what do we do with a super- superscript, What is the purpose of a superscript? Well, sometimes it tells us who an author of the passage is. That's certainly the case here. It says a Psalm of David. Sometimes it does more than that. Sometimes it also will tell us something about the context, all right? So those of us who uh, were able to listen to last week's sermon, remember that Zach talked about the fact that Psalm 51 does that. Psalm 51 explicitly says there in the superscript that the context of the writing of that psalm was when Na- Nathan confronted David about his adultery. So sometimes it does that. And then sometimes it gives some sort of instruction to the choir master, Psalm 22 does this also. It says that this is to be sung according to, quote, the doe of the dawn. All right, what's that talking about? Well, imagine, if you will, that you know the alphabet, all right? You know the alphabet, but you never actually heard the alphabet song. So, uh, uh, so I told you to sing the alphabet song to a tune that you do know. And let's imagine you do know the tune, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And so you begin to sing the alphabet to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. By the way, I realized this year, I have two kids, I'm, uh, I'm almost 42, and I realized this year that those are the same song. I had never known that before in my entire life. I've known the alphabet since the 1970s. I'm not bragging, I just happened to be in my 40s. And yet I had never known that uh, particular fact. And so that's what's happening here, that's what this superscript does. The Doe of the Dawn is apparently this pretty well-known uh, song. It's the Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art or Don't Stop Believing of, uh, of, of Ancient Israel. And so at least to a Jewish choir master, it would have been a very familiar song. And so David said to sing Psalm 22 uh, at least w- with the tune of Dove of the Dawn in mind. So either David said that or one of the later editors uh, of Scripture said that. So what are the lyrics All right, if we're to sing it to this particular tune, which by the way, we don't know, although I'm gonna get Tim to make it up and he'll do that for us at the end. Uh, Although we don't know this tune, what are the lyrics to uh, the song? Let's begin in verses one and, and two. Psalm 22, one through two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find... No rest. So, if you assumed that Doe of the Dawn sounds like a happy song, you are wrong, right? Just like if you assumed that Bambi is going to be a happy movie, you are wrong, right? It is sad. And so, uh, Doe of the Dawn is sad. Again, this is a lament psalm. We've talked about this before, this particular genre of the, the, the psalms. So, we see a lot of different pictures, a lot of different portraits or perspectives of King David in the Bible, right? Sometimes he's doing great he's slaying giants, he's dancing in his underwear as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the city. Uh, Other times he is uh, super depressed or he's committing adultery and murder and so forth, in which case he gets super depressed again and he's depressed here. He's sad. Well, why is he sad? Well, the answer to that is we really don't know. We don't know the context here and I think that's actually intentional and brilliant. Unlike what we saw in Psalm 51 where we actually see the context, this doesn't tell us much about what's going on in David's life. We know that he feels forsaken. We know that he's surrounded by his enemies. But that honestly can fit a whole lot of times in his life. Like when his father-in-law Saul wanted to kill him or when his own son Absalom betrayed him but we don't know the exact circumstances of his suffering, the exact circumstances that are influencing David to write Psalm 22. And again, I think that's intentional so that you and I can enter into this suffering so that we can sympathize with him in his sufferings. If he had written, my son has betrayed me, he's stolen my throne, he's tried to kill me, he slept with my concubines, very, very few of us could say, yep, I've been there, all right? Maybe some of us could relate if you would have said, my father-in-law's trying to kill me, all right? But uh, he keeps it general, he keeps it ambiguous, he keeps it vague so that we can enter into this suffering. Notice as we work through the Psalm that David is gonna confess spiritual and emotional and relational and physical pain. The whole gauntlet, whatever you're dealing with he can relate to, which means whatever form of suffering you experience, this psalm can function and should function as a healing balm. You might not have been persecuted by your parents or your children, but you have, all of us, have experienced suffering, and you will experience suffering, and this psalm speaks to that pain and sorrow. So maybe God feels distant to you right now. right? Maybe he feels distant. Maybe uh, you feel abandoned, Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you haven't ever felt that before. But after months of quarantine for COVID, after all of the protests and uh, 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 unrest that's happening in our country, maybe now you feel really forsaken. You feel like God isn't listening to your cries. Or maybe you feel like God isn't listening to your cries for your marriage or for your your child or for, for your job or whatever it might be. Again, this psalm applies in just about any circumstance of suffering. All we know is that David feels abandoned. He feels forsaken. He feels hurt. He cries out day and night, but he can't seem to hear anything except the echo of his own cry. Now, has God actually forsaken him? No, he has not. After all, even if David uh, really believed that, David wouldn't be writing this. David wouldn't be praying or writing if he truly believed that he was completely forsaken, but he certainly feels forsaken. And I can imagine that that feeling of forsakenness is actually worse than the actual physical, literal threats that he's facing. In a sense, he can bear the threats, he can bear the attacks, he can can bear the hunger, the persecution, and all of that. Remember who David is. David is a guy who has faced literal giants. He he has faced lions, he has faced bears, he's slain his 10,000s, but I would imagine none of that is as painful as feeling like God has abandoned him. Again, maybe you can relate. You cry out, it feels like no one is listening. No one cares, you feel lonely and depressed. And if so, this psalm that we're going to work through today provides a paradigm, this, this pattern, this picture for how we cry out to God and how we're honest with our feelings, with the way that we are feeling. Even if your feelings are wrong, as they often are for all of us. For example, imagine that you're angry with God. Imagine this is what you're feeling toward God. All right? You're angry at God. Is it ever good and right to be angry at God? The answer to that is no. It is never right and good to be angry at God. It is good to be angry at sin, but it's sin to be angry at good. And God is always and only Good, but imagine for whatever reason that you are angry at God. What should you do about it? Well, there's something in us that says we should just suppress it, we should just push it down, we should just ignore it. What are we doing in that moment? We're just compounding the sin of anger at God with the sin of hypocrisy or the sin of deceit. But two wrongs don't make a right, and so instead, we're to confess our anger, to admit it, to cry out to God. So, David hasn't been forsaken. But he confesses that he feels forsaken. Likewise, if you're a child of God, you've not been forsaken. You cannot be forsaken by God. But would you be vulnerable? Would you be honest enough to confess that you feel that way for whatever reason? Whatever it is that you're feeling in this moment of suffering, of sorrow, of pain, or whatever it might be, would you be vulnerable and honest enough to confess that? Let's keep going, verses three through five yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel and you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried and were rescued and you they trusted and were not put to shame now this might seem at first like kind of a strange twist there's this sudden glimmer of hope in the midst of the darkness of verses one through two and so that seems like a strange turn and yet Those who are familiar with this particular type of psalm, what's called a lament psalm, should actually expect this. It's kind of like the difference between watching a horror movie and watching a romantic comedy, right? If you know what you're watching, if a killer clown jumps out in the middle of a horror movie, you kind of expect that, right? It still might shock you, but you're at least expecting this is the type of genre where this thing happens. But if you're watching You've Got Mail, and all of a sudden, a killer clown jumps out. You think, what's happening here? This is not correct, right? Tom Hanks has gone crazy, all right? Although I think You've Got Mail sounds like a, a, a pretty uh, interesting horror film name. Anyway, those uh, who are familiar with this particular style, this particular type, this particular genre of, la- uh, of lament psalms should have this expectation. When they read this, they're not surprised. Because there is always this uh, interweaving, uh, this interspersion of hope and praise in the midst of the sorrow. So we'll see this back and forth between hopelessness and hope uh, in a couple of places in our text today. It's almost like a person that's kind of bobbing in the ocean. With each break of the waters, there's this deep breath of truth before being plunged below the surface of their feelings again. And so I love this juxtaposition that we're going to see throughout this psalm between praise and sorrow. In a sense, this psalm provides corrective lenses for all of us in this room. Right? Some of us in this room are far too spiritually nearsighted. Some of us in this room are far too spiritually farsighted. If you don't remember what those terms actually mean, nearsighted means that you can see things near. You can't see things far away and farsighted is the opposite. And so Christians typically tend toward being either spiritually nearsighted or spiritually farsighted. Here's what I mean. Those who are nearsighted spiritually, they have trouble seeing beyond their present circumstances. Oh, they see their pain. They see their sorrow. They see their suffering. But those present circumstances are far too great. The waves are far too high and they can't seem, uh, they can't see the horizon. They can't see the promises of God's future grace. On the other hand, those who are far too farsighted tend to have trouble living in the day. They seem fake. These are the kind of, uh, of Christians who just kind of speak in cliches about the goodness of God and kind of act as if any sorrow, any suffering, any grief is unbecoming for a Christian, as if the promises of God somehow make us into some sort of uh, stoic ro- robots or something like that, as if the promises of God protect us. From emotion and feeling and suffering but notice what this psalm does it assumes that we will feel sorrow we will feel pain we will feel sadness and so forth the ideal Christian life is not robot robotic stoicism but neither is it overwhelming hopelessness even as the psalms give us permission to grieve they don't let us tumble off the cliffs of depression into the valley of despair And so in the midst of the ways, there's also this beacon and buoy of hope that we're gonna see over and over. And that hope comes as we do what Jared talked about a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 103, as we remember and recount and recall the promises, the character, the nature, the works of God. That's what David is doing here. He's remembering, he's reminding himself of the holiness of God, of the faithfulness of God. He's praying the promises This is what keeps him and also what keeps us afloat in the midst of the storm by remembering the past faithfulness and future promises of God. Let's keep going. Verses six through eight. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So in the previous section, we're reminded that God is this holy and divine king. Well, David also is enthroned. David also is a king, but not in comparison with God. In contrast to God, David compares himself to a worm. God is the highest of beings, and David describes himself as the lowest. And this begins this series of images of beasts that we're gonna see in Psalm 22. David's a worm, His enemies are described as bulls and lions and dogs. So not only is David gonna contrast himself with God, but also with his enemies. And those enemies scorn him. They despise him. They mock the king, demonstrating this relational dimension to David's suffering before he's gonna come back to the surface for yet another gasp of hope in verses nine through 11, which says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. So again you have this cry of trust, this cry of truth, this cry of hope in the midst of the sorrow. Again he remembers the past faithfulness of God. How? By remembering that from childhood God has proven himself to David. Long before Goliath, long before being anointed as the king of Israel. So long before the kingdom, from his mother's womb, God has been faithful and gracious and merciful to David. That's what he's saying here. Now, when we were parsing out the preaching assignments and the order, the particular order of the text that we were going to in, uh, we didn't intend for this uh, to happen, but there is this interesting connection that exists between our text that we're considering today and the text that Zach preached last week. If you remember Psalm 51 in verse five, we read this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So when you combine that particular truth that you see in Psalm 51 verse five with our passage today, you get this really powerful reminder of these complementary truths that form the foundation of our hope. The first one that we saw last week, that is that we are wicked, that we are broken, that we are bent, that we are depraved from birth. By our very nature, we are inherently evil. We are inherently wicked. We are inherently sinners. And yet from this text, we're reminded that God loves us in spite of us. Not because you or I am lovely, but simply because he is loving. Indeed, he is love. God's love for you is not dependent on you or some circumstance or attribute of your life. God's love for you is not dependent on you or how well you behave or how smart you are or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic class or your intelligence, God's love for you is based on God. I think many of us, maybe all of us, would confess that with our mouth. If someone were to ask you, does God love you more because you are in this particular profession? or because you're of this particular race, or because you're this particular gender, or you're this particular age, we would say, absolutely not. We would confess that with our mouths, but deep down, I think a lot of us don't really believe it. We really believe that God's love for us ebbs and flows. Because our love ebbs and flows. But God's love is not like our love. In fact, God is not like us. He doesn't ebb Or flow, He doesn't shift or change. And therefore God's love for you isn't dependent on your love for him or the works you do for him or some circumstance of your life. In fact, as we see in the psalm today, it precedes your birth. Actually, reading the New Testament, it goes all the way back before the creation of the world and before time itself. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, listen to this, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When were we chosen? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Some of you might wonder if you've been coming to Parkway for a while, you might wonder why we make such a big deal out of things like election, not the upcoming election, but God's divine election or predestination or divine sovereignty. Even when those things are rather controversial throughout church history, why do we make such a big deal out of it? Well, the reason is this. Listen to me, because this is essential. We passionately proclaim the sovereignty of God in your salvation and the doctrines of grace and election. Because if you don't believe that God's love for you is grounded in His will in eternity past, then you will inevitably believe that God's love for you is dependent on you. And that ultimately leads to only one of two conclusions either pride, when you think that you have merited his love, that you have earned his love, that you deserved his love, or overwhelming shame when you realize that you have not. That's it. We preach predestination because apart from it, there is only pride or shame. But in the doctrine of election, there is this humbling and overwhelming grace that frees us from both. So we aren't embarrassed by these truths by the doctrines of grace, by reformed theology and so forth. In fact, we exult in predestination and election, not because we just love controversy, but because we love the truth of God's free and unconditional love for sinners. Let's keep going, verses 12 through 15. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So now we see the the focus shifts back to the enemies of David and they're described as bulls and as lions. Both of these animals that are known for their strength as opposed to the worm that David has compared himself to. Right, so if my wife were to call me at the office and say, there's a huge worm in the living room, which she's done, by the way. My wife doesn't like worms, so she's literally called me at the office and said, there's a huge worm. And I'm like, I don't know what you want me to do about it, (laughs) right? That's not like I'm driving home, you know, breaking the speed limit or something like that. But if she were to call and say, hey, somehow there's a lion in the laundry room, I'd have a different response, right? All right, why is my response different? Because there's an actual danger there. David's enemies are described as bulls and lions to demonstrate this sense of danger. By the way, Bashan was this area that was particularly known for cattle. It would be kind of like me saying the Longhorns of Texas, although I'm an Aggie, it pains me to say that, And, and yet I couldn't think of a better example. But from there, David talks about being poured out like water and his bones being put out of joint and his heart... Was like wax. What's he doing there? Well, obviously, this is poetry, and so he's giving this poetic depiction. So, let me give you an example of this. I've, I've mentioned before, I had a debilitating. A fear of public speaking all the way through college. In fact, I had to take a public speaking class at, uh, at AM, and it was absolutely the worst. It was one of the worst experiences of, uh, of my life. And so I was called on to give this impromptu speech by the professor, and, uh, and so there's the entire class, like 150 or so uh, people in there. And so I walked to the front of the class, and as I did so, my hands are sweating, my heart is racing. My mouth felt like I hadn't had a, wa- a drop of water in days. I felt like I was going to throw up. And so I get to the lectern where I'm supposed to give this impromptu speech. I think it was on Halloween. And, uh, and, and so I get there, I turn, I face the class, and then I turned and I ran out the door. Straight to the registrar's office, left my books in the class and all that and uh, dropped the class. I couldn't do it. Now, I think it's interesting that uh, it's probably more embarrassing for me to be the guy that ran out of the class than had to just struggled through the speech. But uh, sometimes fear is not rational. Uh, But all of that that I experienced in that moment, dry mouth, this accelerated heartbeat, this sweating and so forth, it describes these physiological effects of fear and anxiety. And, And that's what David is talking about here. This is not a literal medical diagnosis. It's this poetic depiction of this physiological condition of his fear, of his suffering, of his anxiety. His heart hasn't literally melted. His bones are not literally dislocated. The Psalms, again, are poetry and they should be read as such. We've mentioned this before. I think Zach uh, talks about this a lot. But if uh, you use the phrase, my head hurts, that means something totally different if you're writing a poem to your uh, wife a note to your wife about how much your, 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 your heart hurts because you love her so much versus if you're writing a note to your doctor describing your symptoms or something like that. So these descriptions by David are not literal medical symptoms, but they are these powerful images of the effects of fear and sadness on a man. And again, bear in mind who we're talking about. I mean, David is a man's man, right? He's faced literal lions and bears, He's faced Goliath with nothing but a sling and five smooth stones. So think of whatever it is that your perfect image of masculinity might entail, right? Navy SEALs, James Bond, Clint Eastwood, Tom Selleck with that sweet magnum mustache, Tim Hollis, whatever it is, your perfect image of masculinity, David certainly fits that mold. He should be one of the first guys that come to mind. And yet he's masculine enough to experience and to express pain and suffering and grief and sorrow. That whole cultural uh, men don't cry or men don't show emotion junk that was popular when I was a kid is just that, it's junk. Now, if you're you're 30 and you scrape your knee and you call your mom to come and kiss your boo-boo, something's wrong, right? But at the same time, if you're 50 and your world is falling apart and you can't confess it, You can't be vulnerable, you can't show any emotion. That's not masculinity. That is unhealthy apathy. Again, the Psalms give us this permission to grieve and to lament, to experience emotion. In fact, let me say it even stronger. As we'll see as we continue to move through the Psalms over the next few months, it not only permits us to feel these things, it actually prescribes us It prescribes certain feelings. It commands us. It makes certain demands on us. It commands us to rejoice and to weep and so forth. And that's what David is doing here. Let's keep going. Last section, verses 16 through 18. We'll spend the the bulk of our time uh, on this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now to understand what's going on here, we need to draw the analogy in the right place because being surrounded by a bunch of puppies might sound like your dream. That's something you would absolutely love. That's not what David means by being surrounded by dogs. Dogs in the ancient world were not uh, viewed as man's best friend. They're viewed as scavengers and predators, basically what cats are today. That's what dogs were back then. And then you have these series of images that further describe David's physical condition. All right, he says, they have pierced my hands and feet. Now, just an aside here, we're not going to uh, uh, do this on every single uh, phrase again, but this is an important one. This is one of the most difficult passages to translate in the entire Old Testament. All right? We aren't sure if the original reading is that, uh, that uh, his hands and feet were pierced or exhausted, or something else entirely. There's a number of different translations that are available. We certainly know, as this language of the psalm is going to be applied to Christ, that Christ's hands and feet were pierced, but we aren't sure if that's what this passage is referring to explicitly. Regardless, it's clear in the context. It's just another poetic way of describing the pain and sorrow and fatigue that David is experiencing. And then he says, I can count on my bones, which probably just indicates hunger, as when you're so famished that you can see your ribs. And then his enemies are staring, they're gloating, they're dividing his garments, which is this sign symbolizing, representing uh, defeat. Now at this point, anyone who is really familiar with the Gospels uh, is probably ready to burst with this Christological expectation Right, this psalm is going to be pregnant with imagery that is applied in particular to the death of Christ. If you don't uh, catch that, if you didn't see that, let me give you nine of the most explicit allusions to this psalm in the gospel account of the death of Christ. As, we've, uh, as we began, the very first verse says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where do we see that in the gospels? That's what's uttered by Christ on the cross. In Aramaic, Elai Elai lama sabachthani, right? This is what he actually cries out. So he is bringing, drawing our attention to this particular psalm as he's dying on the cross. That's the first one. Like David, also, people pass by Christ and they mock him. Christ's bones are put out of joint in his crucifixion. His heart is melted like wax. as water flows from his side. His tongue sticks to his jaws as he cries out, I thirst. He's surrounded by evildoers, the thieves on the cross and those crucifying him. His hands and feet are pierced. All of his bones can be counted. Not one is broken, unlike those crucified with him. His garments are divided and lots are cast. Now, most of these similarities are allusions. They're implicit, but the author doesn't explicitly say this is in fulfillment of Psalm 22, although sometimes they do. For instance, look at John 19, 24. So they said to one another, that's the soldiers, let us not tear it, that's Jesus' garment, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. All right, so John explicitly says their doing this is in fulfillment of this Psalm. So what do we do with this similarity that exists between Psalm 22 and the Gospels? Between what David is suffering and what Jesus suffers? Let me talk about four potential ways that people interpret Psalm 22 in general and that similarity between Psalm 22 and the Gospels in particular. Four different ways. The first way is to just say this Psalm is only about David. That's it. Any connection to Jesus is just coincidental. Well, considering the number of similarities, and the fact that the authors themselves make the connection, show that that view is unhelpful. Right? You can't read Psalm 22 as if it's only about David, but that's one way that you could read it. Second, that it's only about Jesus. This view says that David isn't talking about himself at all, but that he kind of has a big prophet time machine, so he looks into the future. And then he writes this purely as a prediction about Jesus. Well, that also seems difficult to square with the way that we read the Psalms in regards to David's authorial uh, intent. A third way, though, that you could read this is to say some of it is fulfilled in David, some of it is fulfilled in Christ. So maybe one line is about David and the next line is about Christ and it kind of just goes back and forth. Now, I think there are some Old Testament passages where you see this idea of uh, partial fulfillment, but I don't think that that is what's happening in this particular Psalm. Instead, I think we see our fourth way of interpreting it. Again, first, only about David. Second, only about Jesus. Third, some about David and some about Jesus. The fourth is that it's all about David, but it's also About Jesus. That might be confusing. Let me explain that. What I mean by that is that this passage is truly about David. We don't know the circumstance of his life, but David is facing a particular circumstance where he is surrounded by his enemies, where he feels forsaken by God. He feels forsaken, he feels betrayed, and so forth. All right, this is very real. This has actually happened to David, and yet there is this greater and final fulfillment that we see in Jesus Christ. We typically call this idea typology, all right? Typology is a subcategory of prophecy in which certain persons, events, and institutions of the Old Testament bear a preordained symbolic relationship to corresponding persons, places, or things in the New Testament. Let me read that again. Typology is a subcategory of prophecy in which certain persons, events, and institutions of the Old Testament bear a preordained symbolic relationship to corresponding persons, places, or things in the New Testament. Now, that definition might be confusing. Let me give you some examples, all right? The first one, the Old Testament idea of the temple, right? You read the Old Testament and the temple is a real thing. And yet we see this temple imagery function as a type. It's this preordained symbol of something better. So now we get to the New Testament and, and we see that Jesus is that something better. Jesus himself is the antitype. He's the fulfillment. He is the temple. He's the true and better temple. The place where heaven and earth overlap. That's the imagery of a temple. He's the place where God and man meet together. All right, so that's typology. Or likewise with the Passover. The Passover is a type and Jesus is the antitype. He's the fulfillment. Jesus himself is the true and better sacrificial lamb slaughtered to ransom God's people from slavery. In fact, the Exodus in general is a type, and the antitype is Christ's deliverance of his people from spiritual slavery to Satan. You could say the same thing of Adam or Melchizedek or Moses or manna or the, the offices of prophet, priest, king, and on and on we could go with these uh, images of types and antitypes and typology. In fact, the entire Old Testament is filled with shadows of which Jesus is the substance. And again, this is called typology and this subset of prophecy describes what's happening in a number of places in the New Testament where the author says that some event fulfills something that was previously written. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes you're reading the New Testament and the author says this uh, took place to fulfill this event or this passage in the Old Testament, and you go back and you read the Old Testament, and you think, I don't understand how this fulfills it. And oftentimes what's happening there is it's a typology. It's not filling it literally, it's fulfilling it typologically. Let me give you an example of this. So when Hosea says, out of Israel, I called my son, the prophet Hosea doesn't mean particularly Jesus, he means Israel. And yet when Matthew reflects back, on Christ's exile to and from Egypt, he sees this typological fulfillment of the passage. And I think that's what's happening in Psalm 22. That David is the anointed king of Israel. As such, he's surrounded by his enemies. He feels forsaken. He's hurt, he's suffering. Now fast forward to Golgotha. How much more can the suffering servant relate? If Jesus is the true and better anointed king, and he is, If Jesus is the true and better David, and he is, then how much more has Jesus experienced persecution and pain and sorrow and suffering? You see, David feels forsaken. Christ was forsaken. David feels like death. Christ died. What David experiences and anticipates in this sort of figurative sense, Christ fulfills in a literal sense. That's what I think is happening when the New Testament alludes to Psalm 22. I don't think that David is just giving a predictive prophecy of Christ's suffering. I think David is writing of his own, but as a type. And there's this greater fulfillment when the authors of the New Testament are writing the New Testament. They look back and say, Jesus experienced something very similar to that in typological terms. That's Psalm 22. What are we to do with it today? And I wanna close with just two applications. The first one being that we should read this psalm and we should learn how to worship and how to weep. John Calvin says this about, uh, about this psalm. There is not one of the godly who does not daily experience in himself this same thing. According to the judgment of the flesh, he thinks he is cast off and forsaken by God, while yet he apprehends by faith the grace of God, which is hidden from the eye of sense and reason. So we should learn from this psalm how to cry out to God how to worship even in the midst of sorrow, as you feel forsaken, as you feel fatigued, as you feel frustrated or beaten or betrayed or abandoned or depressed or despairing or whatever it might be, that you read this psalm and you learn. You learn how to weep. You learn how to lament. You learn how to be honest. You learn how to be vulnerable and open even while remaining tethered to the hope found in the past faithfulness and future promises of God. That's the first application. And speaking of the past faithfulness and future promises of God, the second application of this psalm is to allow it to lead us to Christ, to read it typologically, that Jesus is the true and better David. He is the true and better king. He is the suffering servant. He's the lamb of God. We read this psalm Christologically and remember that Christ was truly forsaken. Why was he forsaken? So that we would not be Christ was broken. Why was he broken? So that we would be healed. Christ tasted death. death. Why did he taste death? So that we might live. You see, what David is asking for, in a sense, is deliverance from death. But Christ actually offers us something better now. And that's deliverance through death. That's the hope of the gospel. That's resurrection. And that's our ultimate hope. A day in which there will be no more spiritual or emotional or relational, or physical suffering. A day when all things will be new, when Christ will return, when, he'll be resur- when we'll be resurrected to unending and unimaginable joy. And we'll see a bit more of that resurrection hope as we finish this psalm next week. For now, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us Confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't understand what David went through. We can't understand what Jesus went through. We can't understand our own emotions and feelings and suffering. None of these things are possible apart from your spirit. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this psalm. I'm grateful for the permission that we have to just be honest before you. To confess Our feelings, even when our feelings are wrong, as they often are, that our feelings uh, lie to us more than anyone else, I lie to myself. So I'm grateful for the permission of this psalm to bring those before you and to learn how to worship even as I weep and grieve and lament and mourn. And I'm grateful, Lord, that your son suffered that your son was rejected, that your son was betrayed, that your son was beaten so that I might have life, that I might have joy, that I would not know the punishment of my sin. I'm grateful for the opportunity we have to open your word. pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son. pray these things in his name. Amen.